Alright everybody, welcome back to Volume 4 of the 20th Century Movie Club. My name is Dana Buckler and I am joined by my regular co-host Mike. Mike, how are you today? I'm good, Dana. How are you today? I am doing well. Now, this is going to be a special episode for us. Not only is it the fourth episode, but it's going to be the first one in a series where we bring on a special guest to join us. And for the very first guest to join us on the 20th Century Movie Club, I could think of no one other than my other co-host, Ashley. Ashley, how are you today? I'm doing great. Excited to to be on this version of the Dana Buckler Show. I'm pretty excited. And this is actually the first time that Mike and Ashley have actually had a chance to talk to each other. So I think that's really awesome as well. Yeah, other than on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. So you know the rules of the game here. We each take a turn recommending three movies that were released before the year 2000. In the off chance that one of us has selected the same movie as someone else, we also have a wildcard pick standing by. So, Ashley, since you are our special guest for this episode, I am going to turn it over to you. What is your first selection for Volume 4 of the 20th Century Movie Club? Sure. So, you know, when I sat down to try to think about which movies I was going to do, I wanted to try to bring something a little new to this really great model that you guys have put together. So when I was thinking about it, I was inspired by Mike, who chose, you know, Before Sunrise on the last episode, and he talked about his obsession with Ethan Hawke. And Mike, you and I share that. I, I also have a very deep, long-lasting uh, obsession with Ethan Hawke. And so I wanted to do an Ethan Hawke movie. But like I said, you know, usually you guys have been doing a lot of the classic movies from this time period. So a lot of action, a lot of what I like to classify as like boy comedy. So I wanted to put in a little infusion of geek to our show. Um, so let me preface my choice by again saying, Mike, I will fight you in terms of who is the biggest Ethan Hawke fan. And that is why I chose the modern sci-fi classic 1997's Gattaca. So directed by Andrew Nichol, who would direct actually the Truman Show the following year and starring a beautiful and fantastic Ethan Hawke, one of my forever girl crushes, Uma Thurman, and a gorgeous pre-hair loss Jude Law. Uh, Gattaca tells the story of a not-too-distant dystopian future where society no longer judges us based on inherent ability, but the quality of our genetics. And so those people that can afford it are able to genetically program their kids. Those that aren't are called godchildren, and they're non-genetically modified and are left to walk the world as a lesser class, including our main character, Vincent, played by Ethan Hawke, who takes matters into his own hands by purchasing the identity of the genetically perfect yet paralyzed due to a freak accident in Jude Law. And I chose this, guys, because I think it's a movie that makes this amazing commentary on bioethics. It pays a beautiful um, homage to Aldous Huxley's A Brave New World, explores, you know, what it means to be human, whether or not you prescribe humanity, and the best parts about what make us unique, kind, and individuals with a soul. Um, so I, I loved it. I watched it a couple of days ago. And it completely held up because there's not much tech in it. Um, and I'm curious, what, what do you guys think about Gattaca? Mike, I'll go with you first. So I, I obviously, being the big Ethan Hawke fan that I am, I enjoy the hell out of Gattaca. I think it's a it's a very, very well done movie. I think the acting is is top notch all around. Uh, Jude Law, you know, this was one of Jude Law's sort of earliest major roles. And he really i still think it's really one of his best performances he manages to convey both this contrasting arrogance because he's of this privileged you know 
society and then also just this pain and anger and depression at what's happened to him and his relationship with Ethan Hawke in the movie is for me I think really one of the big kind of backbones that, that holds the movie together if I have any complaints about Gattaca I think it's a little bit and this is it bothered me less when it came out it bothers me more now because I see it as a consistent problem in Andrew Nichols scripts and especially the movies that he's directed which is it can't quite decide what movie it wants to be and and what target it's going for you know there's this really great sci-fi allegory going on but then there's also this almost film noirish murder mystery that's attached to it that frankly, I don't know really adds a whole lot to the movie. And, and that's something that I see in a lot of Andrew Nichols scripts, um, you know, from Truman Show, I think is a little different. But I think that also had a much stronger guiding hand in Peter Weir uh, directing it. But you know, you look at Lord of War and, and some of the other movies that he's done, uh, Simone, he he tends to be a little too, his eyes are a bit bigger than his stomach with some of the things that he wants to tackle. But I think in the long run, that's a fairly minor complaint with Gattaca. I think it's still a really solid movie. I think it's a very good recommendation, Ashley. Well, for me now, I, and I'm sorry to say, I saw this one time Rented it from Blockbuster Video. This would have been 98, 99. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it's it's not one that, that has clearly stuck with me because I'm just piecing it together in my head right now as I'm thinking about it. And so I really don't have much of an established comment to make on the movie other than I have to add it to the list and rewatch it and then get back with both of you on that one. Well, and I have to say to your point, Mike, I agree with you, but I actually like the fact, I mean, I think it is unique in the fact that it's a sci-fi noir, exactly what you said. I think that it's really, really interesting. And I think one thing it does well is a lot of dystopian movies get really, um, they kind of get in their own head in terms of like the atmosphere. And this movie has a very distinct atmosphere, but we don't see a lot of the, like, for example, like the terrible Fahrenheit 451 HBO sh movie that, that came out last year. You know, they spent so much time crafting the sets and crafting the environment that it took away. It became its own character and it took away from the plot itself. And what I like about Gattaca is Gattaca looks like it could have been made yesterday. Like when you rewatch it, because it is... They, they left out all of those pieces. And is it cool? Is it slick? Yeah. I mean, it, it looks futuristic enough for it to feel like it's always going to be in the future, but it's not so futuristic that it, it is unaccessible when you watch it 20 years later or, you know, 10 years later. And, and I have to also say too, Dana, when you watch it, I think you'll be really impressed by the score. I forgot how beautiful the score is in that movie. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, um, wonderful and, and dramatic in, in the best kind of way. So excellent. All right. So Gattaca, that's Ashley's first pick. Mike, what's your first pick of the day? So it's it's funny to me that Ashley mentioned that we've mostly recommended, uh, quote unquote, boy movies, because the, the, <laughs> I said first, boy one comedies. Boy the comedies. first one that I'm recommending <laughs> is 100 percent a boy movie through and through. This was a movie that I first saw when it came out in the theaters. Uh, I absolutely loved it. It kind of disappeared to the sands of time for a while uh, and then has over the last couple of years had uh, a bit more of a resurgence. Um, and that is 1986. Is the Wraith starring Charlie Sheen? Have either of you guys seen this one? Uh huh. Negative. <laughs> so the Wraith is a a 1986 supernatural revenge movie where a a 
black clad uh, mysterious figure uh, arrives in this small town in Arizona. It basically starts uh, eliminating this gang led by Nick Cassavetes that uh, uses all sorts of nasty tactics to race people and steal their cars, essentially. At the same time this figure shows up, Charlie Sheen shows up in town as kind of a mysterious drifter uh, who everybody seems to feel like they know. Obviously, I don't want to get into spoilers, but it's not like we're talking about The Sixth Sense here. This isn't a very deep movie. You can figure out the connection between the two. It's basically the crow by way of Fast and Furious. The car scenes in it are the real high point. They're the reason it exists, and they are spectacularly done. I I would be remiss if I didn't point out that part of the problem that some people have with the Wraith, and it's it's a legitimate one, is a cameraman was killed filming one of these scenes. You know, we always talk about how great it is to see practical effects in movies, but one of the things that CGI has really helped is it's made movie sets safer for everybody. And this is a perfect example of a movie that had a lower budget than it should have for what they were trying to accomplish. We, I'm only going to go into it a few minutes here, but if anybody likes The Wraith and wants more about it, last year or so, the Projection Booth podcast did a two-hour dive on it with interviews from the director where he talked about the accident and how the accident happened. Uh, a lot of good stories about Charlie Sheen. It's kind of comforting to know that Charlie Sheen was a dumpster fire of a human being even all the way back then. So there's a lot of reasons to kind of 30 years later, not like this movie, but it's one that was so formative to me when I was, I mean, I was 10 when I saw this movie and and it still kind of hits that sweet spot for me of sort of sci-fi supernatural revenge movie. Ashley, when you were like, "Uh uh-huh, I kind of got a sense you're not a big Wraith fan. (laughs) Well, first of all, I'm going to call you out, you know, with your, with your comment on Gattaca where it couldn't figure out if it was a sci-fi or noir. (laughs) I mean, the Wraith cannot figure out if it's a drag racing movie or if it's a ghost movie or it's a revenge movie. I mean, it's such a strange mismatch. You know, I have not seen The Wraith in a really, really long time. But what I remember of it, Randy, Randy Quaid is in this, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He plays the cop, right? Correct. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I remember really being confused because it's one of it's one of those movies where there's no character that isn't a, like a teenager or a cop. Like it's like no one else exists in the town. I, I will say that I, I think that Charlie Sheen, especially 1980s and early 90s, Charlie Sheen was super charismatic and really uh, charming, even in the worst films. Um, like I have a soft spot for, you know, Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part Two, like, you know, all of that. Right. Other than that, I, uh, I don't, I, it's not, I'm not a huge fan of it. It's definitely a quote unquote boy movie, um, which I'm okay with some of them, but this one, uh, this one's not quite my cup of tea, but I'm sure there's tons of people out there that, that would enjoy it. So I, I am really genuinely starting to get a bit concerned that I may not have seen any of the movies the two of you are recommending today. I mean, there I, there will be one yeah. for me that you definitely seen okay. for sure. So, I mean, I saw Gattaca once and I don't want to say it was forgettable, but I certainly don't remember it. And the Wraith here, here's, here's me who, who likes to think that I've got a, a good handle on movies that have come out over the past 40 years. Never even fucking heard of it, which I know <laughs> sounds crazy, but it's true. When he, when you said the Wraith, I was like, the what? And I was just like, so I am, but the, the way, Mike, the way you describe that movie, I have to see that. And I think that's going to be my movie I watch tonight. 
Looks well, and the one thing I want to say about it is is Ashley's criticisms are all 100% correct. I mean, sure. I, I'm not I'm not naive about what The Wraith is. The thing that I love about The Wraith is it is a type of movie that could have only been made in 1986. Sure. You know, mid-80s was such an interesting era. I think it's why for so many people of our generation, we have such nostalgia for it because there was a real sense of uh, a lot of kind of anything goes, you know, especially in the the action sci-fi genre sort of arena. There's no way a movie like The Wraith gets made today. There's no way it gets made in the 70s. Literally, it could only have been made in 1986. And I think that's one of the things I really like about it. Excellent. Well, and and fun fact, Dana, mm-hmm. I just was looking up uh, for posterity purposes. It has a 33% on the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> so, Interesting. Um, yeah, but a 61% audience score. So a lot more fans of watchers than critics. So, Mike, it's interesting that you bring up the year 1986. And you mentioned a movie that could only be made in 1986. Because ironically... My first pick is a movie from 1986. Now, interestingly enough, this movie was actually remade in the 2000s, and it was a very subpar remake. And Ashley, you mentioned that The Wraith has a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. This movie has a 32% on Metascore. And this is a film that stars C. Thomas Howell and Rutger Howard. And it's a very simple premise, and it's called The Hitcher. And it's the story of... C. Thomas Howell plays a character who drives vehicles, delivers vehicles. Essentially, he's going from Chicago to Los Angeles. Along the way, he picks up, picks up a hitchhiker played by Rucker Howard. I don't want to get too much into spoilers here, but let's just say that the movie sort of takes off and never really stops and has one of the most underrated chase scenes that I've seen in almost any movie, especially from the 1980s. And I don't want to say more than that, except that this is a psychological thriller slash horror movie slash slasher film. And I'm going to turn it over to you first, Ashley. Have you seen The Hitcher? So I am really embarrassed to admit this, but I have seen the 2007 Sophia Bush, you know, just terrible movie. Um, I did not realize that was a, a remake. So I have never seen the original. I've only seen the 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 one that was just a, a total shit pile in, in the early 2000s. So um, I was not a big fan of that one. I did think I, I remember thinking at the time that the, the plot was really interesting. So it makes sense to me that this would have been you know, a remake that obviously there was something there was meat enough there for them to want to to remake it. But the, the 2007 one was not uh, it just well, it just didn't genuinely just wasn't a good movie. So I'm going to have to go back and watch the original. You know, what's interesting about the 2007 remake and the original is the antagonist in both films are played by very, very good actors. I don't take Sean Bean, his performance, he's very, he's, he's very minimally in the film, What much like Rutger Howard is in the 86 film. I just find the Rutger Howard performance to be far more menacing. And I think a lot of that has to do is that uh, do with uh, just Rutger Howard has always sort of had a very intense presence about him. So, Mike, Hmm. what about you? What about you, 1986? We seem to have a little bit of a theme going on with car chase films and things like that. What are your thoughts on The Hitcher? Uh, I like The Hitcher. I don't like it quite as much as as I think a lot of other people do. 
without going into spoilers, I admire that it's got a nasty edge that I sort of feel like the remake shied away from. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's there's a real sense of menace and malice running through that movie. And a good portion of it is, like you said, because of Rutger Hauer, because you're right, Dana, even in roles where he is ostensibly a nice guy or a hero, there is always this underlying sense of menace to Rutger Hauer. And so when he goes full psycho killer, uh, you know, slasher type character, he's he's phenomenal. And I think he is what really makes this movie worth watching and, and why we're still talking about it, you know, almost 40 years later or 30 years later, because it's uh, it's really a performance that's worth seeing. Um, C. Thomas Howell, I can take or leave. Jennifer Jason Lee is very good uh, in, in, you know, given what she has to do in the movie, what she's given to do. I think she's very good in it as well. One other thing I did kind of want to mentioned while we're talking about it falls outside the parameters of our of our show but the director of the hitcher robert Harmon, also did a sort of spiritual sequel in 2004 called highwaymen with jim caviezel and rona mitra that i think is really rock solid and nobody saw it uh so if you have a chance to check that one out and you like the hitcher i think that's a very good one to check out as well absolutely and and you mentioned the brutality that is lacking in the 2007 one and I'm certainly not going to get, again, never get into spoilers when we talk on the 20th Century Movie Club. But there's a couple scenes in The Hitcher that are still just kind of make my skin crawl thinking about it. And I haven't watched the movie in probably a year. But it's, uh, yeah, it's it's something else. It's a real, it's it's really an interesting film and one that I think, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get on my tangent about remakes. That's a tale for a completely different episode. So, Ashley, I'm going to turn it over to you for your second pick. Sure. So, um, you know, we talked about Ethan Hawke with Gattaca. And when I was sitting down and I wanted to do an Ethan Hawke movie, there were so many, you know, that I could choose from. I really almost did Reality Bites. I mean, there were a couple of others that, you know, really were at the top of my list. And when I think about Ethan Hawke, the other obsession I had from the 80s, the 90s was was Christian Slater. I was a huge Christian Slater fan. Still am a huge Christian Slater fan. I think the work he does on Mr. Robot is absolutely fantastic. And so I, you know, tossed around doing Heathers or I tossed around doing, you know, interview with the vampire. But what I came down to was I wanted to mention probably my favorite Christian Slater uh, film, which is 1990s Pump Up the Volume. So starring Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis, uh, Pump Up the Volume tells us the story of uh, Slater's character. His name is Mark Hunter, and he's a super reserved and really quiet teenager. But by night, Mark takes on the persona of either Hard Harry or sometimes Happy Harry Hard On, which is his unauthorized uh, radio station host you know, persona. And as Harry, Mark explores topics like suicide and loneliness and sex and what it means to be a teenager. And eventually the radio show becomes the target of the FCC after angering parents, as most smart teenagers wind up doing. And I'll leave it there in terms of the plot, because I don't want to spoil it, because I feel like this is a movie a lot of people either didn't see or don't remember. But I think that it's a really beautiful time capsule of what it's like to be young, what it's like to be at the mercy of all of the adults around you that more often than not just don't understand you. But more importantly, though, the movie deals with this huge theme about truth. And it's about this need to speak your truth and what happens when that truth is devalued or dismissed. And really, I think that's a perfect thing to explore in a movie about teenagers. And and this is kind of like the other side of the coin, Dana, like we did our, you know, teen sex 
um, you know, comedy retrospective. And those are all very funny. And there are moments of pump up the volume that are very funny. But it's the opposite side. It's a very serious movie that is dealing with teenagers and what it's like to be a teenager. Because when you're that age, you know, you own nothing, you're the ruler of nothing, except for your own experience. So to have that devalued, it's not only harmful, but you know, it kind of feels like a whole devaluation of this entire self that you're busy creating. So it's a really fantastic movie. It genuinely holds up. I think everybody should watch it. And it's also how I found out about Leonard Cohen when I was 12 years. I watched this movie for the first time when I was 12 years old, and I had never heard of Leonard Cohen before. And um, in the movie, Mark's uh, radio show starts by playing Leonard Cohen's song, Everybody Knows, which I would argue is probably the worst Leonard Cohen song, but it at least introduced me to Leonard Cohen. And it, just in general, the movie's got an amazing soundtrack. And it, there's this really famous topless scene with Samantha Mathis, which, you know, if that'll get you to watch it, then watch it. But, you know, I mean, it's really, really fantastic. And um, yeah, I mean, have either of you guys ever seen it? I'll say this. Um, I didn't see it when it came out. I was aware of it. But it wasn't a movie that I probably watched for the first time until maybe 2000 or 2001. And I remember 2001 day and I thought it seemed a little bit dated. But of course, now I look at that through a completely different lens. And I, again, something I need to rewatch, but I do remember having, I have very fond memories of that film from when I watched it. And I'd like to point out that in 2019, that character would have a podcast now. Instead, mm. instead of a, you know, a radio station, I just thought about that. I just said, you know what, he would definitely be a podcaster. So, you know, I, I do have very fond memories of it, but it is definitely something I think I need to give a rewatch to. Mike, what about you? So, A, payback for Before Sunrise, Ashley, because uh, I wasn't going to recommend it this week, but it was on my uh, list for the next episode that we recorded. So, I good feel, to you. I feel redeemed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I used to go around writing talk hard on everything when I was in high school. So this movie is obviously very important to me. You I and think I this both. Was, yeah. Yeah. You I, and I both did the same thing. I think this movie's incredible. I think Christian Slater is uh, possibly never better. I, I'm with Ashley. I think he gives generally good performances. There was a, a time there in his career where it was pretty clear that he was coasting on being Christian Slater. But for the most part, I think he gives phenomenal performances. But this is such a he's so young in this. And this is such a raw, angry, yet restrained performance from him. It really is an impressive uh, thing that he does in this movie. It's moving. It's touching. It's again, like I said about Before Sunrise, I think it's um, one of those movies that just kind of taps into truths about the way young people view the world and interact with the world. It's it's one of those movies that, that really is about high schoolers that doesn't feel like it was written by 40 year old men. Like it really does kind of feel like it was written by people who at least have a passing familiarity with how people in high school act and interact and deal with things. Amusing, completely not movie-related anecdote. Scott Pollan, who plays uh, Christian Slater's dad in the movie and is the principal of the school, I sold that dude luggage once. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> When I was when I was in in college, I was working in a, working in a luggage store, and he came in, and 
uh, bought some luggage and, and I, I messed it up because I, I saw him, I saw his name and I'm like, you're Scott Paul and you were in pump up the volume. And he got really happy. And I was like, man, that, I really liked it. He's like, that's a good movie, isn't it? And at that time he had also done a guest stint on Beverly Hills, 90210. And as Ashley knows, I'm big 90210 fan. We had a big Twitter conversation about it. And I was like, oh yeah. And you also did a guest bid on 90210. And he like lost it on me. He was like, you know what? You do like five episodes of some teen show and that's all people remember. And I was like, ah, I screwed it up. I could have talked to the dad and pump up the volume, but I mentioned 90210. So anyway, pump up the volume has a lot of meaning to my life personally. So uh, I think it's a great recommendation. I think it's a great movie. Well, and, and I'll just say too, like, I, I, again, I know we don't give spoilers, but the ending of this movie, I don't know if it's because I saw it at such a formative time of my, my life, because when I, like I said, I was 12 when I saw it and my friends and I, we watched this probably every other week for, you know, all of middle school. <laughs> um, and so, but the, it, there's the ending, there's the last line of this movie with that. And Christian Slater has it. I mean, that will always give me like goosebumps because it's just such a great ending. It's good movie making. And, you know, you talked about before sunrise and about how amazing the, the script is and before sunrise and how it feels, you know, so natural. And it feels like two people are actually having conversations when Mark is on the air in this movie when he's doing his radio show that's what it feels like it feels like you literally are in the room with someone who is 17 years old who is going through all of those things and is speaking and is this voice of their you know of their generation and i know that it you know, it was made in 1990 and the world is very different in 2019, but the experience and the feelings are still the same. And, and in watching it to prepare for this, you know, I was really surprised to see how much that has, has held up and to be on the opposite side, to be a parent now, you know, and, you know, looking at it through the eyes of a parent with my kids growing up, it was even more resonant. So, um, so yeah, it really held up and it was, it was really good to go back and watch it. All right, Mike, your second pick of the day. My second pick is one, Dana, that I'm absolutely positive you will have seen. Okay. So we're, we're good there. Um, I am uh, going to 1987, uh, a film from a director that a lot of people love, who as a general rule tends to leave me cold, and that's Brian De Palma. There are De Palma movies I like, but I am far from a De Palma acolyte like a lot of people are. However, this one particular movie is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's one of his most mainstream movies, and I think it's the one that really showed if he wasn't didn't always want to be the new Hitchcock, what he was really capable of. And that is 1987's The Untouchables. I'm hoping both of you have seen this one. Ashley? Um, I have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As have I. So for those who don't know, The Untouchables, basically an, an updated version of the story of Elliot Ness trying to take down Al Capone. It is uh, the movie that got Sean Connery an Oscar. You know, Sean Connery's personal problems, notwithstanding of which he has many because he's not a great human being, but he was phenomenal in this movie. He was absolutely great. It was kind of the start of his big comeback that led to Indiana Jones and The Rock and, and that Sean Connery resurgence. Early Kevin Costner, really kind of Kevin Costner. Costner at the height of his Kevin Costner as playing these this, you know, sort of the idealistic Elliot Ness. And he's the perfect person for that, because you really do believe when Kevin Costner is idealistic and naive, but hopeful and dedicated. I mean, he just nails that performance. Uh, there is a, again, without getting into spoilers, there is a scene in a train station that is both an homage to uh, a Sergei Eisenstein movie, but also something that is a 
masterclass in modern editing and pacing and creating tension out of uh, a scene where really actually not that much is actually going on. I think this is one of the best. It's hard to call it an action movie, but I think this is one of the best action drama thriller movies from the 80s, I, I think. And of course, I'd be remiss not to mention Robert De Niro playing Al Capone in a relatively over-the-top performance, but I think that's what the movie requires. Um, so I, I think this is just by far and away my favorite De Palma movie. I think it's one of his best movies. Uh, I absolutely love this thing. Ashley? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely like The Untouchables. Um, this is a genre that isn't, it isn't a genre I go to frequently. Um, like the gangster movie is not I mean, there's a couple, you know, that I like. I mean, I love, you know, I mean, if we're talking about like organized crime, I mean, I love the Godfather trilogy and I love a couple of the more modern ones. Like I thought American Gangster with uh, Denzel Washington was amazing. But, you know, this era of gangster movies, you know, with Al Capone are not, uh, it's not really my my favorite, but I, I think it's a very good movie. Kevin Costner is amazing in it. I mean, I think everything you said about him is, is very true. Sean Connery is really great in it. I, I don't know if I would be as kind to Robert De Niro. I think that his performance, I think, over the top is is putting it nicely. If I had any critique in general about The Untouchables, it would be that overall, I think it's a little melodramatic uh, to no end, right? Like, I don't think it, it has a purpose to be that melodramatic. And I also think it's really long. This is one of those movies that when I when I watch it, um, I feel how long it is. And, uh, you know, those would be two critiques, but it but it is it's, it's a great movie. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that like you said, with Kevin Costner, I mean, this really this is, you know, classic Kevin Costner. This is when he was becoming the mega movie star, because I think a lot of people today, because I know, Dana, you talk a lot about, um, you know, your coworker, that uh, kind of how this whole a whole thing was spawned, you know, what movies have they not seen? And I think if you polled a lot of people that are young, you know, let's say under the age of 25, I don't know if they all realize how huge of a movie star Kevin Costner used to be. And this was at the height of, you know, of all of that. And and I think that's a really cool thing to watch. Um, I actually randomly have just seen that within the last year because a family member of mine was watching it over over a holiday. And so I had just seen it. And I mean, if, if anything else, just watch it for for Kevin Costner and Sean Connery. So I think I think it's a good pick. So I'm going to go ahead and say that yeah, I, I really do like this movie. It's not in my upper echelon of uh, organized crime films, not on the level of, say, Goodfellas or Godfather or something like that. But I also respect that it's a very, very well-made movie. But there are a few things I really do like about the movie. For one, Andy Garcia, Charles Martin Smith, Sean Connery, and Kevin Costner. What I really like about them is they're all so different from each other. The way the four of them come together, they have a, a very interesting chemistry and a very unique chemistry together. And uh, there's there's a particular scene when uh, you've got uh, Sean Connery and Kevin Costner. They're out recruiting. They want to bring in a couple more people, and they they go right to the police academy, and they're trying to recruit Andy Garcia's character. And it's that moment for me. It's that that moment when I realize that Kevin Costner is sort of the you know Elliot Ness, the the Boy Scout, you know, that does everything right, tells his men. You know, if you if you used to take a drink, you don't anymore because it's prohibition. You know, you you run the straight and narrow, and then you get Sean Connery who is the complete opposite streetwise, knows how the world really operates. And when he interrogates, essentially interrogates Andy Garcia's character, just very great interaction between them. So I liked it when the four of them, the four were on screen together. I will say this. I don't think this is De Niro's best performance. I'm going to 
Second, what Ashley said, I think he's a little over the top in this one. I'm also going to second what Mike said about the scene in the train station, which is is famous. It's it's you know, it's a famous scene when it gets lampooned in a naked gun movie a few years later. (laughs) And uh, which which, by the way, is worth just going on YouTube. It's just worth watching. Just type in naked gun uh, slash untouchable scene. It's hilarious. I'm going to second another thing that Ashley said that I do feel like the movie is a little bit too long. And it only has a run at runtime of one hour and 59 minutes. But the reason I think it's too long is I think that final showdown that Kevin Costner has with, uh, you know, Capone's number one guy, uh, I just felt that was a little anticlimactic given what had happened at the train station. And so I was just, I think it, I, I, I think the, the train station sequence could have been the closing set piece. But other than that, it's, I remember just to go back two years ago or, no, 2017, when the hurricane came through Florida and we were all without power, but I had a, a laptop that had a fully charged battery and a DVD player. I had a handful of DVDs laying around and, and I watched, I remember I watched The Untouchables waiting for the power to come back on. And, and I do overall think it's a good movie. It's just, I don't, I don't put it in my upper echelon of gangster films, but as far as it being a Brian De Palma film, Mike, I agree with you as well that this is his most mainstream film by far. Some might say, Scarface, but I would say this one. Mike, back to you. So I'm I'm going to defend a, a couple of things here. One, Dana, you mentioned the final showdown, and it, it's going to be hard to talk about it without getting into spoilers, but I, I'm going to do it, or at least make my best right. attempt here. I actually find that from an action standpoint, you're right. It's a bit of a, a letdown after the train station scene. But from an emotional character arc standpoint, I think it's both incredibly cathartic and really puts a nice exclamation point on the arc of Kevin Costner's character because he makes some decisions in that scene that he never would have made at the beginning of the movie. And it kind of shows the arc of the person he needed to become to try and take down somebody like Capone. Uh, And so I actually love that final showdown. That's actually one of my favorite parts of the entire movie. As far as De Niro, you're right. He is over the top. You guys are 100% correct on that. That being said, anybody that's seen this movie, if you walk up to them and you go, I want him dead. I want his whole family dead. I want everybody that he ever talked to dead. You're going to know exactly what movie I'm talking about. So while he's over the top, he also did create a memorable performance for better or worse, but it's at least memorable. You're going to stick with De Niro's Al Capone. Um, And then just kind of the last thing, as far as upper echelon of gangster movies, what I like about this one, and, and for those who have listened to the podcast, especially our My Cousin Vinny episode, you know what field I I work in, what I do for a living. I like the fact that this is a gangster movie from the side of of law enforcement. Most gangster movies, Goodfellas, The Godfather, Miller's Crossing, they're all told from the perspective of the gangsters. This is one that's told from the perspective of law enforcement. And, And that, I think, is perhaps why it resonates with me more than others. Not that I, you know, not getting into, we're talking about movies here, not real world issues with law enforcement. But when it comes to movies, I've always resonated to movies that are told from the side of the righteous. That's why I like superhero movies for crying out loud. So like this has always resonated with me because I like Elliot Ness more than Al Capone. I'm more interested in Elliot Ness than I am Al Capone. But I get that this is unique to me. And certainly I wouldn't 
stand here and say that it's as good as Goodfellas or The Godfather. But it is a movie that I have watched. I watch it probably every couple of years and have since 1987. Well, you know, can I just say one more thing? Um, You know, I don't mean to be like the wet blanket here, but one of my biggest pet peeves about movies that are portrayed to be true life stories is that I feel oftentimes they create fiction where fiction doesn't need to be created because the actual story is more interesting or just as interesting as the, um, you know, as the the fiction. And so people walk away believing these these lies that are told to them by Hollywood, and they believe them to be history. And you know, the untouchables is the movie, it's it's based on the 1957 book of the same name that was written by one of those federal law enforcement people who had retired. And the book, you know, sold a huge amount of copies, which is how this whole thing kind of snowballed and the movie got made. And you know, most of it is complete bullshit. You know, I mean, there's a if you're interested in in who Elliot Ness actually was and who Al Cap- how Al Capone like actually was involved in all of this, there is a documentary series that PBS did. I don't remember when it was like 2012, 2011. And it's called Prohibition. And it's actually about this time period. And one of the historians in it, you know, talks at length about how, you know, the whole story of Elliot Ness and the untouchables is a complete, you know, PR invention that none of that really happened the way it was. And that Ness actually was not a good guy, that he and his federal agents, you know, were were just as bad as the the criminals that they're remembered, uh, you know, in taking down. So that's that's also another huge issue I have with movies like this that are I'd much prefer to see like a fictional, you know, character of like the Corleone family and that being, you know, you know, fictionalized in the way that it is, um, you know, based off of the Godfather book, I'd rather see it like that than to see, you know, them take these real life characters that had really interesting stories, and then they create either half interesting or nowhere near as interesting as the as the real life um, exploits that actually occurred. So, um, and again, I know that maybe it's like a wah wah, but you know, my husband will tell you if he comes on a podcast ever, he will tell you the amount of movies I have walked out of because of how historically inaccurate they are. The most famous of which being Troy. I left Troy like five minutes into that movie and not because it was historically inaccurate, but because of how inaccurate it was of a depiction of the Iliad. And I wrote a whole blog post about it. So um, I'm that person. So that's also another issue I have with with the untouchables. So sorry, Mike. No, you're fine. Actually, Dana, can I can I actually respond to that? Of course, please. So to me, I this feel like is we're in the based. courtroom, Mike. I feel like we're in the courtroom. <laughs> this, this, well, I just didn't know. I didn't because I know we're on a timetable and I didn't want to I didn't want to go drag on i did not expect the untouchables to be the you know the thing that we would get hung up on so the thing is is i don't view it as based on the book and i don't view it as based on a true story there is a massive american cinema tradition of taking folk heroes and fictionalizing their you know this is a wyatt earp movie this is a jesse james movie i i agree with you it's not historically accurate i don't like elliot ness the real person all that much i don't think he was that good of a person i love kevin costner as elliot ness so that's when I was saying I like that it's told from the side of law for law enforcement. It's not that I think this is an accurate movie and it's like pro cop or anything like that. It's this is fiction. I mean, this is 100 percent fiction. This is Tombstone. This is, you know, Battle at the Earth, Gunfight at the OK Corral. If you are somebody that's watching this and are getting your history from this movie, please do not do that. 
please just view this as a, a it's a folklore it's a folk tale it's a legend based on people who existed in some capacity but uh, it's uh is it the what's the john wayne jimmy stewart movie with the quote if if the truth conflicts with uh if the truth conflicts with the legend print the legend yeah, yeah. this is a perfect example of printing the legend this movie is printing the legend and i would hope that people that watch it know that it's legend and are not taking it as a a, a historical artifact i love it because it's legend i don't view it as a true to life telling of of a story does that make sense Oh, it totally does. It's just, you know, working in higher education, unfortunately, I don't think the general public is as intelligent as the way that you just portrayed that. Because I think a lot of people see movies like this. Like a lot of people watch Tombstone. And don't get me wrong, I think Tombstone is a badass movie. It's one of my favorite Val Kilmer performances ever. But I think a lot of people watch, you know, Tombstone and they go back and they go, okay, I know the story of Wyatt Earp and now his brother died. Like, you know, and I think they watch a movie like this and they go, oh, okay, I know the story of Elliot Ness and Al Capone. Al Capone was so interesting and like his life story was so incredibly interesting and is great fodder for movies and you're talking about cops I mean yeah I don't mind things from cops perspective but I think that's why I prefer movies like LA Confidential that show the cops as like real people and you know and in that movie they show how they are as corrupt sometimes as the as the criminals are in that time period and I think in this time period you know you had cops that were as corrupt as the criminals that they were um, that they were hunting and I just think that would make the truth sometimes I think just makes for a much more interesting film than uh, than anything that Brian De Palma and I don't remember who co-wrote the script with him, but whoever co-wrote the script with him, you know that the two of them could come up with. I mean, the truth sometimes is a lot. I don't know. Well, I just think it's a lot more interesting. And the co-writer is David Mamet. So, you. you know, this is somebody that has a I love Mamet scripts, but I, I think, you know, if anybody's ever seen Mamet movies, you know, the problems that his scripts very often have. And uh, he has a passing familiarity with historical accuracy at best. So yeah. I do agree with you on that, Ashley. Dana, you're the judge in this situation, uh, <laughs> obviously, because he asked your permission. So how do you rule? <laughs> well, I, I'm just going to I'm just going to say this, that I think you guys are arguing the same point. Uh, I, and I really, I really think that, you know, Ashley, I think you're, I think you're, you're, you're right about the historical inaccuracies, but at the same time, Mike, I also agree that, you know, you know, if you're getting enjoyment from the film, that's what this, this show is about. So, so, you know, it's, listen, I could listen to you two go back and forth for another 20, 30 minutes. This is really good. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm coming up with another series for the podcast. It'll be the courtroom series where the two of you take a side. You argue, you, 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 it's movie court. You're going to debate, you're going to debate some stuff. Anyway, that's just thinking off the cuff right now. Well, after that spirited discussion, I think I'm going to bring it down just a little bit with my next selection. And I, I think I'm hopefully, hopefully my next selection is a movie that we can all agree upon is one of the funniest movies ever made. And it is a movie that is endlessly quotable. It is a movie that I have seen. Uh, as far as comedies are concerned, I know I put My Cousin Vinny as one of my favorite all-time comedies, but every time I think about this film, I watch it. They have made subsequent sequels, one of which I think is decent, but for my money, this is the best Chevy Chase performance of all time, and I know that he's had his issues as of lately, but we're going to go back all the way to 1983 with National Lampoon's Vacation. Now, this is a film that's directed by the late, great Harold Ramis, and it's written 
by the late, great John Hughes. It stars Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, and Randy Quaid. What can I say about Vacation that hasn't already been said? I think it is arguably, like I've just said, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but I think it's arguably one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. I think it's one that still holds up today. And I think it's one that is the perfect R-rated film in the sense that it is not grotesque, it is not vulgar, but it has just the right amount of adult language in adult situations to earn that R rating, but to not exploit it. I think all the performances are great, and I think Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo have fantastic chemistry in the film. There's a number of great cameos in the movie, including you know a very early cameo by the late, great John Candy. I am often reminded of a family vacation that I went on in the late 80s with my dad and my, my sisters and my brother in the family station wagon, drove cross-country Canada to... Toronto's Canada's Wonderland and all the all this awful situations that could happen along the way happened to us. So, I mean, it's near and dear to my heart. So I'm going to turn it over to you first, Ashley. National Lampoon's Vacation. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I I love I love this one. And I also love Christmas Vacation. These are two really nostalgic films for me. When my dad is gone one day, which I hope is a very long time from now, but I will always remember fondly my time watching these movies with him. Uh, he's a huge Chevy Chase fan. And he, you know, when I was a little girl, I don't even remember the first time I watched this one or Christmas Vacation because he watched them so often. And so absolutely, it's very funny. I think that, you know, Chevy Chase, this was the role he was born to play. And even though it's all so ridiculous, I also think it's very strangely relatable because every person that was a kid in the 80s or early 90s, we all had these crazy road trip stories with our with our family at some point, right? Like, I don't know anybody who doesn't have it. And, you know, it reminds me every time I watch this movie, uh, my, my family went to Disney World every year when I was a kid. And so that was our, you know, theme park that we were going to. And while usually we had fine trips, it, you know, it's a 10 hour drive from New Orleans over there to, to Orlando. And I'm from New Orleans, it, you know, if you haven't listened to the podcast before, so it was a 10 hour drive. And we had this horrible trip one year. And it was very much, you know, the the real life version of what happens. And I'll never forget my dad when we finally got there, and we were all fighting and my brother and I were fighting, you know, he looked at us in the middle of the theme park. And he said that this is the happiest fucking place on earth. So you are gonna be happy. You know, and it was just he completely lost it. And you know, we didn't have a gun or anything crazy like Chevy Chase does, you know, and you know, or the craziness that happens in the movie. But it was very much that, you know, that that feeling. And so I, I think these movies are really relatable in a strange, you know, in a strange extended, you know, universe kind of way. But yeah, I, I love it. I, I don't think there's anything bad that you can say about it. And let me just say, I think Beverly D'Angelo is one of the most underrated actresses from this time period. I know that she's kind of the straight man to, to Chevy Chase and, and to Randy Quaid in these movies. But she is so good in those movies. And she's so funny in those movies. And and so I, I love it. I think it's a fantastic choice. I actually don't know how it took four whole episodes to get that one on here, because that I think is a staple of the 20th century for sure. Mike? So I haven't seen this movie. I, I have to kind of admit, I haven't seen this movie in 25 years. I remember kind of liking it. Obviously, I know it's cultural impact. For me, 
one of the problems is, and this will, as the podcast goes on, this will come out more and more because I have recommended comedies so far on the podcast, but maybe it's because I'm soulless and dead inside. But a lot of really popular comedies tend to actually leave me a little cold. And I remember Vacation leaving me a little cold, but I haven't seen it in so long. So what I'm going to do is add it to the list and revisit it and we can talk about it. You know, I'll talk about it with both of you down the road because I do need to give it a watch again. A lot of people whose opinions I really respect, not just you two, but other people really love this movie. And so I need to give it another shot to see if it's just something that's not resonating with me for whatever reason, or maybe I will actually like it a lot this time. I do want to shout out that apparently this has become a Randy Quaid themed podcast. <laughs> so that's uh, so so we are now renaming the uh, 20th Century Movie Club the Randy Quaid Movie Club and all movies will be Randy Quaid starring uh, recommendations from here on out. So and I hope you all I enjoy that. Out. You can help me out from here on. And if the I'm, next one you recommend, Mike, is Independence Day, yeah, I am going to disconnect say. and leave you both. So... <laughs> And, and nope, I can nope. just call the Independence Day is for a deep dive episode. That I need yeah. a full two hours to talk <laughs> um, about. <laughs> well, and, and Dana, can I just take this opportunity to call BS on Mike saying he's cold and dead inside? You recommended Real Genius, which is one of the most mainstream, like beloved comedies ever. So I call BS, Mike. I think that it's just you haven't seen this in a while. And then that's and I'm fully willing to admit that. So that's like I said, I'm going to add it to the top of the list and revisit it and see what I think uh, from here on, you know, now that I'm older and, and stuff like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say this about uh, the, the, the three other sequels, European Vacation, Christmas Vacation and Vegas Vacation. Two out of the four. I really like the other two. I am completely indifferent about I I yet to find anything funny about European Vacation. Yet there are some people that just love that film. I love Christmas Vacation, I think, for the same reason everybody else does. You know, uh, I think I was 11 when that film came out. It became Christmas Eve tradition at my house to watch that every year. And that movie is 100% the Chevy Chase, Randy Quaid show through and throughout. I love, I, I really, really love that movie. I think Vacation, National Lampoon's Vacation, is the better of the two movies. And uh, I remember being thoroughly disappointed when I saw Vegas Vacation, when I saw it in the theater, although... In subsequent reviewings some years later, I do find a few things to laugh about in that movie. But yeah, definitely the first vacation is the top of my list of the four films that were made. So Ashley, I'm going to turn it over to you for your third and final pick. So I am going to stick with the comedy theme. Um, I said at the beginning about how you guys have recommended some, you know, boy comedies, you know, Beverly Hills Cop, Better Off Dead. And while those are fine movies, and actually, I'm embarrassed to admit, I had never seen Beverly Hills Cop before <laughs> until you guys did the episode. I actually texted Dana and I was like, oh my God, this movie really was <laughs> really funny after, you know, the episode you guys did. But I, those are all fine. Those are fine comedies. But, you know, Mike, you talk about being cold and dead inside. I will give you a run for your money in that way because I, like my comedy dripping in cynicism and as black and as dark as it can get. So I wanted to round out my picks with my favorite dark comedy from the 20th century, which is the 1996 Coen Brothers Fargo. This movie, if you've never seen it, which I hope everyone has, because it is an absolute classic. This is a maybe take on a true story. It's a little controversial whether or not this actually took place or not, but it is set 
in a small town and there is a man who has immense money troubles and he pays a set of criminals to kidnap his wife, hoping that uh, he'll be able to get ransom money for her to pay off his debts and things go awry. I won't give any spoilers away in case you haven't seen it, but they go very, very, very awry in the the film and supposedly in real life, if if it was based on this true story or not, um, which I'll get into in a second, but it is all about the investigation where a wonderful Frances McDormand plays one of my favorite cop characters ever where she is investigating and so this movie stars like I said Frances McDormand, uh, William H. Macy in an absolutely hilarious role one of my favorite Steve Buscemi performances and Peter Stormari in a really funny role as well and I have to say I have a personal connection to this because one of the things I was most excited about this is how much I love this movie y'all I was most excited about when I was pregnant with my son Um, I was due in February, had him in January. So I was super pregnant at Halloween and I knew I would be. And that meant finally that I could be Marge from Fargo. I had the best costume ever um, where I got to to play her because she is pregnant in the film. She's a pregnant cop. And like I said, this movie is quirky. It's dark. It's hilarious. It is one of the most uh, memorable scenes with a wood chipper maybe you'll ever get. And just one last thing about the true story thing. The Coen brothers have gone back and forth since the um the you know since the mid 90s about whether or not they base this on a real story um when you watch the movie there's a a card that you know a title card that comes up that says that the film you know is based on events that took place in Minnesota in 1987 and that at the request of the survivors the names have been changed and then they kind of backed off of the that and said that, and I quote from Joel Cohen, that they weren't interested in any kind of fidelity. And then they said again that it was based on it. So who knows, right? But it doesn't matter if it was real, if it wasn't real. It's hilarious. It is dark. It is funny. It's gross. And I just absolutely love uh love this movie i I was i'm curious what do you guys think about fargo well i'll go first on this one i did an episode a patreon exclusive episode of fargo which is available to all patreon subscribers there so i've done a deep dive look at the behind the scenes production and uh i can second what you're saying ashley like this is this movie is a complete work of fiction and you know they put that title card up there just because they can do it they're the coen brothers Although there is some speculation that the infamous wood chipper scene, and I don't want to say any more than that because uh, I don't want to get into spoilers, was in fact inspired by a real life incident that happened in the early 1980s. And I do touch on that in the episode. As far as the movie goes, first Coen Brothers film I saw in the theater, I believe it to be their most straightforward narrative of all the Coen Brothers films that have ever been made. It is my favorite of them, and and that's a that's a bold statement because they have made some fantastic movies. No Country for Old Men, what are we talking? Raising Arizona, The Big Lebowski. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. But it's my favorite movie. It's it's my favorite film of them, and it's certainly to me the most rewatchable of the Coen Brothers films, just because of the characters you mentioned, the actors involved. This is a character driven movie that has one of the most insane plots of any movie I've ever seen. But you 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 revisit it. For the characters. And I can't say enough good things about it. And I just want to final. My final thought is to tell people. And I don't know how you both feel about this. But I believe the Fargo television series. To be amongst some of the best television ever produced. Particularly seasons one and three. So Mike thoughts on Fargo. 
I mean, I don't know that I have anything to add to what you guys have said. If, if listeners out there haven't watched Fargo yet, what are you doing? Like, get on that. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, for me personally, it's not one of my top uh, Coen Brothers movies. There's there's definitely Coen Brothers movies that I like more, but that's in no way, shape or form a slight on Fargo. It just there's certain Coen Brothers movies. I think one of the things that's so great about the Coens and and just kind of a plug, even though it's not part of the show, if you haven't watched Ballad of Buster Scruggs yet, it's on Netflix. Get on it, because one of the things that I think is great about Ballad of Buster Scruggs is you get every kind of Coen Brothers you could possibly want in that movie. One of the things that's so great about their filmography is there is a Coen Brothers movie for everybody. Whatever your favorite type of movie is, they have done a movie in that genre in that that arena. And so there's such a personal set of filmmakers because everybody has really interesting reactions to their movies. You know, I think they've really only got two movies that I think kind of universally everybody says are bad. And even those have their fans, you know, Intolerable Cruelty and The Lady Killers. I think those are the ones that people go to defend the least. But other than that, their filmography is amazing. Fargo's amazing. Um, it got them the Oscar recognition that they, you know, had deserved for quite a while. Um, I'm glad that Ashley brought it up because for me, there's some actors and some filmmakers that by my nature, I kind of just want to recommend all the time on this show. And I try not to do that because I want to break it up and make it more interesting for people to listen to. But the Coen brothers would be in that list. I, I could just start at Blood Simple and every week just recommend a Coen Brothers movie. And so I don't have anything else to add other than it's great. If you haven't seen it, think about your life choices and <laughs> fix that problem because this is a great movie. Yeah, no, I mean, the only other thing I would I would add to that is, I mean, I think that What's so smart about Fargo is the way that they craft the comedy where, you know, some of the comedy that y'all have talked about on here and, and even like the last episode you and I did, Dana, where we did teen sex comedy retrospective, you know, on there, the comedy is very straightforward in a lot of ways, you know, it's made to get laughs. But the great thing about Fargo is what the Coen brothers do best, which is they create atmosphere, and they create these amazing character studies, and then they just let it unfold, and they just let it happen. And the comedy winds up being these moments that you almost feel guilty at laughing at, because they're so, you know, messed up in a lot of ways. I mean, there's I won't give anything away. But you know, there's one scene where someone's been shot through a hand and there's a cop this, you know, just podunk cop who picks up the guy's hand and he goes, Oh, you know, Marge, you think that's a defensive wound, you know, and just like in the accent that he has that, you know, that crazy accent, you know, mixed with like the the environment and the setting and all I mean, it's just it's so funny, you cannot help but laugh. And even the infamous wood chipper scene that we won't get into that scene is hilarious. And it shouldn't be but it is. And and why while, you know, this is a great Coen Brothers film, I'll just go ahead and put it out there. My favorite Coen Brothers film is The Big Lebowski. I think that one is absolutely amazing. But this, I think, is their best piece of, of art that they made. Um, maybe only second to being No Country for Old Men. But this is just an art piece. There's a reason why it's recognized as one of the best films that's, you know, been made in the last, you know, few decades. And one of the best comedies that's ever been made. There's a reason, you know, for that. So I agree. Check your life choices, you know, download it, rent it, do whatever you have to do if you haven't seen it. Because if you're a lover of movies and you haven't seen this, you know, you, you better get on it. All right, Mike. 
So I'm relatively confident my final pick neither of you will have seen because nobody's seen. But it's on Amazon Prime and it is a a movie that I love. And really, what's the point of having a captive audience if I'm not going to just champion movies that I love that people didn't see? This is to to give a shout out to the Pure Cinema podcast guys, who, by the way, Brian Sauer gave us a very nice shout out on Twitter this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. They have a series of of movies that they call handshake movies. They're they're movies that maybe aren't that popular, but if you meet somebody else that has seen that movie, you just kind of have a hand. You know immediately you have a bond with this person. My last recommendation is a movie from 1997 directed by a director named Steve Wang. And the name of the movie is Drive. Um, I'm guessing neither of you have seen it. Drive. All right. Let so. me talk about it. <laughs> Let me talk about it. And I and I and I was worried about it because I figured a lot of people wouldn't see it. I didn't know how that would play on the podcast. But I think this is the kind of movie, especially action movie fans out there, if they watch it, I think they will be very glad that that they watched it. So Drive is a 1997 martial arts movie that really brought Eastern uh, Hong Kong, uh, I guess really technically more Japanese style martial arts to a Western movie. It stars uh, Mark Dacascos and Kadeem Hardison as a a sort of forced together pair. Mark Dacascos plays a former uh, an escaped Chinese soldier who has been implanted with a sort of turbo drive that gives him enhanced speed, enhanced agility, things like that. He ends up kidnapping Kadeem Hardison because he's trying to get to LA so he can sell this and make his escape to the United States uh, and live in the US. And there's a bunch of mercenaries that are chasing after them because the company that created this wants to get it back from him. The important thing with this movie is one, it's very funny. Two, it's got an early Brittany Murphy performance. Uh, may she rest in peace. And she is fully formed in this movie as Brittany Murphy. I mean, she's just delightful in the movie. And most importantly, the stunts are done by a man named Koichi Sakamoto. This is a name that if you like action movies, everybody should be aware of. He cut his teeth on Sentai shows, uh, Power Rangers for people in the US, but he formed a stunt team called Alpha Stunts and they are everybody's very, you know, action fans are very, very familiar with Chad Stahelski's action team. They did all the stunts for the John Wick movies and and stuff like that. Uh, Alpha stunts got there first. And the stunt work in this movie is some of the most amazing stunt work that you will see in a low budget film. Like I said, I wouldn't recommend it if it wasn't on Amazon Prime, but it's on Amazon Prime streaming right now. So there's no reason not to watch it because this is what heavy stunt martial arts movies should be about. The the choreography, the stunt work is is astounding. There's without going into spoilers, there's a fight scene where Mark Dacascos has to fight uh, a bunch of guys with electric stun batons. And so he cuts the laces off his boots, puts his boots on his hands and fights them with his boots on his hands. I can't do it justice for how cool it is. Uh, it is actually the type of movie that two years later would go mainstream when The Matrix came out. But this has that sort of raw indie spirit that just can't be beat. Um, and those of the people that have listened to the podcast since the start, you know, I love martial arts. You know, I love Hong Kong and Asian cinema. I got to be true to myself and recommend this one, even though three people have probably seen it out there. But really, especially Dana, I think you will go nuts for this movie if you watch it. I'm all over it. I can't wait. 
I am all over that. That just sounds phenomenal. This sounds exactly what I want to watch. You know, I think I think it's interesting that, you know, it came out in the year that it did, because look at what happened, you know, in 98, you had, you know, Rush Hour. And so you had Jackie Chan, you know, being introduced to a whole new set of, you know, viewers and and the type of martial arts he did. And as well, that same year with Lethal Weapon 4 and Jet Li and, you know, how he became this huge, you know, star as well. And, you know, in American culture, I know he already was, but, you know, here in America. So it sounds like it just missed the just missed the mark. Like if it had come out maybe two years later, I mean, people were really into that after those two, you know, franchises kind of embraced that, you know, that whole martial arts push that kind of was happening in the late 90s. So I mean, you know, I I, I encourage, you know, people that like that kind of thing to watch it for sure. Mike, anything you want to add before we move on? No, other than Ashley's 100% right. It just it just missed the it was it, it had a window uh, and it was a bit ahead of the window because I really do think and it's so low budget. It was, you know, made for I think 3 million dollars. It got no push, but but you're right, Ashley. The the type of stuff that you're seeing in this movie, Rush Hour, Lethal Weapon 4, The Matrix, you know, Romeo Must Die uh, going into the 2000s. It's all stuff that you see in this movie, only this movie does it all better. Uh, This movie does it as well as I think any Western martial arts movie has ever done martial arts. Excellent. So for the final pick of the episode, you know, I'm going to talk about a movie that uh, came up in my mind when Ashley and I were going over a list of you know, the high school teen movies to think about and to look about. And one popped into my mind immediately, although I, I don't feel like it, it met, met the criteria to, to make it on the show. Plus it was released the same year as another one of the films that we talked about. Now, the thing about this particular movie is it's by a director who I stop what I'm doing and go see the movie the moment it becomes available in the theater. And he only does a movie about once every three to four years. And his name is Alexander Payne. Now he does what I think no other director does. He introduces us to a world that is foreign to most of us, yet reality to so many other people. By that, I mean, in 2013's Nebraska, we got to look at the, you know, the, the upper Midwest. With The Descendants, we got to look at living in life in Hawaii. With one of my favorite movies he's ever done, Sideways, we got to look at wine culture in Northern California. And with my selection, I'm going right on the cusp of the 20th Century Movie Club with 1999's Election, a film that stars Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon. I'm not going to get too much into the plot of the film except to say that it is easily one of Matthew Broderick's greatest performances. And this is saying something because this is a guy that was so poised in the 1980s to be the biggest breakout star after films like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, and then he kind of disappeared for a while. And I look at this as sort of his comeback role. And he's, he's sort of cast against type in this movie. It basically follows one teacher, Jim McAllister's, obsession with trying to stop somebody from winning the uh, high school presidency. And I don't want to say more than that, except to say that it is incredibly funny. And Ashley, you've seen Election. Absolutely. This was my uh, wild card pick, actually, was Election. Yeah. Yeah, I I love election. I think, you know, I said I like dark comedies. You don't you don't get a better dark comedy than than election. I think that it is probably my favorite Reese Witherspoon role. I'm not a huge Reese Witherspoon fan, except for this and Big Little Lies on uh, HBO. I think she's fantastic in those two pieces. And I think this movie, she is just top notch. Matthew Broderick is great. It's the only movie I can really stomach Chris Klein in. I got into a big debate 
tweet on Twitter about uh, Chris Klein and somebody brought this up and yep. it was like, that yes. was me. That I know. Me. Oh, that was, that was <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. And it was like, yes, you know, he, yes, he was, he was, he was good in election. So I, I think it's great. I think the plot is hilarious. I <laughs> think it's just a really enjoyable movie. And you know, one of my complaints about the untouchables was about how, how long it feels. Election is that kind of movie that doesn't feel long at all. Um, you know, it's 102 minutes is the running time and it just, it flies by smart dialogue smart scenes and uh i just i think it's i think it's a really perfect movie and i do want to say this about i I mentioned at the beginning of me talking about this that alexander payne was somebody that i just automatically just go see his films don't you don't have to tell me the plot of the movie you don't have to show me a trailer i don't even need to see a poster because i just love these living breathing worlds that he creates and he does that in with high school in election having said all that the negative press that you heard about his most recent movie with Matt Damon downsizing is unfortunately accurate as I mm. I didn't make it through the entire movie but that that's a discussion for this is that came out last year so this is not the this is the 20th century movie club but I will say that that was the first letdown from uh, otherwise blemish free record the director has had in my opinion mike your thoughts on election so ashley you don't like chris klein in street fighter the legend of chun li really he's so Gosh, good in that movie i forgot uh, about that one <laughs> so for those who don't know just go on youtube and search chris klein street fighter you will find compilations of his line deliveries from that movie and they are their art that but not in a good way <laughs> um i'm with you on chris klein i think he's pretty he's pretty terrible in most movies but in election he's very good that was the right role for him it was and and if i remember correctly he was actually not an actor alexander payne cast him because he wasn't an actor and he had that kind of innocent naivete so i am a little bit embarrassed to admit the first time i saw election i didn't get it i didn't like it i didn't get it saw it again a few years later and had a complete change of heart i think the movie is is everything that you guys said it's sharp There's a lot more going on there than I think the reason I didn't like it the first time I saw it is I went into it expecting it to be because, I mean, at that point, Alexander Payne wasn't that well known. I think he'd only done Citizen Ruth at that point. And so I was going in expecting a much more conventional teen comedy. And it's anything but conventional and it's anything but a movie that's going to go in the direction that you think it's going to go in. And so when I saw it again with knowing what type of movie it was, I was just absolutely blown away by it. I think the performances are top to bottom spectacular. The dialogue is sharp. The plot is is really interesting. And I, I think in a lot of ways, it's uh, quite a bit ahead of its time in terms of how it analyzes sort of gender roles in a high school setting and how we expect men to behave versus how we expect women to behave and you know by contrasting the way Reese Witherspoon's character gets treated and Chris Klein's character gets treated um so I think it's actually got a lot more going on than at the time I saw it I was able to or prepared to even think about um but it is a very good movie it's a very good recommendation um I think again everybody if you haven't seen it you need to go out and see this one 
Well, and and I have to call you naivete. I mean, yeah, Chris Klein. I think that's just called bad acting. Um, But um, but I will say, you know, you're talking about Alexander Payne. You know, we downsizing wasn't great, but we also have to keep in mind that he was one of the screenwriters for Jurassic Park three as well, which was also not not a great film. You know, I agree with you, Dana. Most of the stuff he does, I mean, he did about Schmidt which was a fantastic movie. I know you mentioned Sideways, but even the movies that he executive produces, I mean, he executive produced one of my favorite movies from the early 2000s that I think a lot of people haven't seen, which is The Savages with Laura Linney and Philip Seymour Hoffman. I mean, really most of what he puts his hands on, you know, turns to, you know, really good quality. So I I think Election is a is a fantastic choice. And for those of you that that do enjoy that that dark humor and do enjoy not just the exploration, like you're, you're spot on, Mike, talking about the the gender politics of, of not just high school, but the greater world that we live in. But also this, I think it's one of the the most honest portrayals of what it's like to be a teacher and having to there's that you know there's a scene it's not giving anything away from the plot but there's a scene where he goes through his day Matthew Broderick where he's teaching the same lesson like over and over and over and over again and the fact that he's been there for all of these years and all of these people are moving on to be these other you know these other things and be you know to have other lives and he is still there and the frustration that that causes for him, I, I think it's a really interesting commentary on what it's like to be in education as well. So, all right. And so, before we go, we always like to tell everybody where these movies are available. And like Mike mentioned last time on the last episode of the 20th Century Movie Club, we like to use the Just Watch app. Again, they are not a paid sponsor, just a terrific platform for you to find how your movie is available. So, I'll start first with The Hitcher. This movie is really difficult to find. It's currently only available on the Cinemax Go streaming app. However, uh, off the record, I will tell listeners that if they search for The Hitcher 1986 on YouTube, there may or may not be the movie available in its entirety. So the second movie that I recommended was Vacation. This one is not available to stream anywhere, but it is available on all major video-on-demand platforms, including Google Play, PlayStation, Apple, Vudu, Microsoft, etc. The final movie that I recommended, Election, is available to rent on all major platforms, but it is also available to watch for free on the Vudu app. That is V-U-D-U. That app is available. I use it on my Xbox, on my iPhone. It's available everywhere. Uh, the only caveat is that there are a couple little ads that will play. So, Ashley, I'll turn it over to you. Can you tell, let the listeners know the availability of your three movies? Yeah, so the first movie that I recommended, Gattaca, uh, you can watch that with ads on the Roku app or on the Sony Crackle app. It also, if you randomly have the CBS All Access Pass, you also can watch it for free with no ads. And then, of course, it's available to rent on all streaming uh, platforms. Pump Up the Volume, unfortunately, is incredibly difficult to find. I will tell you unofficially that if you search for it on YouTube, you can find it. But it was just removed from a couple of uh, streaming services. Hopefully, it will be back soon. And then finally, Fargo is currently available on HBO Go or HBO On Demand. And it's also available to rent from any of your, you know, your various rental or streaming services. Excellent. All right, Mike, your three selections. 
Sure. So the Wraith is available on a service called Tubi, TV, T-U-B-I. They're like Vudu. It's ad supported. Uh, they actually have a really great selection of movies that aren't available on other streaming services, especially if you like foreign or independent cinema. They have a pretty good selection. So the Wraith is streaming there. Minimal ads. Uh, they do they do pretty minimal ads. So it's a pretty nice watching experience. The Untouchables is streaming on Amazon Prime and is also fairly readily available. And then Drive is also streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, if you have a Prime subscription, uh, it's free to watch on there. Excellent. All right, Ashley, if people want to follow you on social media. Yeah, you can find me at at Ashley Schlafly on Twitter. And thanks to those of you who reached out after the last episode, especially through DMs. I got tons of DMs, Dana, with people saying, you know, you were pale and geeky in high school and so was I. And so there's apparently a whole lot of us. So pale people unite. Thanks for that, guys. <laughs> All right, Mike, people want to follow you on social media? I'm at Hibachi Justice on Twitter, and then also I am at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you will find the continually updating list of all the movies that we recommend on this show. You can follow me on Twitter. I have two Twitter pages. I've got my personal one, which is at Dana Buckler, and then I've got one for this podcast, which is at Dana Buckler Show. And I second what Mike said, give us a follow on the Letterboxd page that he set up. It's uh, updated about every it's updated about 48 hours after this episode is released. All right, Ashley, Mike, thank you both so much for being on this episode of the 20th Century Movie Club. Yeah, thank absolutely. you, sir. All right, guys, my name is Dana Buckler and thank you so much for listening.